Hey everyone, thank you for listening. I'm Brian Butler, and to introduce this podcast to you, uh, basically I'm going to be telling you about a movie I watched when I was very young that sort of messed me up and uh, followed me into my adult life, and some really weird things that happened with my recollection of the movie and how that scratches at me to this day. I don't remember exactly how old I was when I came across that VHS of Orca the Killer Whale at the Hollywood Video in Rancho San Diego. I was probably no younger than seven, maybe as old as nine, but I'll guess seven. My mom or dad would take me about once a week after the gigantic new video store had opened, and it instantly subsumed all interest from our previous library, the tiny blockbuster near our house we had been loyal renters at since I could remember. Though much smaller in size and selection, the blockbuster did have all the classics, and I remember being frightened by the iconic cardboard boxes for horror movies I was not yet old enough to see, like Silence of the Lambs, Dead Alive, Child's Play 2, Dolls, Motel Hell, and The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. My imagination working off those images proved profoundly more disturbing than the sometimes fun, sometimes heart-stopping bloodbaths I'd later discover them to be. Like Blockbuster, Hollywood Video had many of the necessary films, but also much more. While there can only be so many great movies, quantity over quality was the main attraction of this new place. And as a seven-year-old in 1997, I was hardly an expert on the latter. I had liked the Disney movie The Hunchback of Notre Dame, so my mom let me rent the live-action, made-for-TV version called The Hunchback. Though not entirely faithful, it was much closer to the source material than the feel-good animated musical. Predictably, I was surprised at how dark and boring it was to a kid my age. I must have tuned out or fallen asleep near the end, because I remember being disappointed later when, after irking my mom, she revealed that Quasimodo was ultimately stabbed to death at the end of this version. But I did remember the visceral realism of Quasimodo pouring molten lead on the soldiers storming the cathedral, and being shocked by the sad, somewhat ugly reality behind the cartoon I had cherished. But the horror of Hollywood video had just begun. I would gorge on its excesses like Pinocchio at Pleasure Island, only to stumble into a transformative loss of innocence just a tad too early in life. I'd go on to rent some offensively unwatchable movies from this place that seemed to have every movie, for better or worse, ever made. This is not to say that Orca is unwatchable by any means, quite the opposite, but at that time I was in no way prepared for the dark, disappointing shock that movie would be to the casually curious and optimistic Jaws fan that I was, and the later obsession I would develop as a result of this trauma. Yes, like most kids did and still do, I love Jaws so much that it influenced the VHS covers I would judge possible rentals by. It could even have been my then love of Free Willy that initially drew me to the Orca box, but upon closer inspection, I knew a little bit more about what I was in for. A chilling depiction of the whale, its body awkwardly floating halfway out of the water as if it were standing on its tail. A smear of blood in the water flowing from its mouth as it stares me down. An unfortunately human-looking eye returning my gaze. A broken animal with any possibility of emotion in it replaced by a numb thirst for violence. Its innocent-looking dome-shaped head in the ornate yin-yang pattern on its rubbery skin contrasting the dead malice of its expression the sky burning red above the icy water. 
these are elements of the box I had noticed, but their significance slipped by me at that age, and I picked it up, expecting some cheap entertainment. Jaws meets Free Willy. Cool. I watched it once, possibly in the morning. Somehow I'd watch entire movies before leaving for school. After that initial viewing, nothing much stuck with me aside from a few details, specifically that in the 90s, before digital film and DVDs, watching a 70s movie on VHS still felt quite contemporary. In fact, I thought this movie was brand new at the time, because watching just about any movie as a kid felt almost indistinguishable from actual reality. The other thing I remembered was the ending. I remember much of Orca being fairly dark, sad, and disappointing for a kid expecting light adventure and exciting violence. Something about a whale getting brutally killed, I'd later realize it actually shows the whale prematurely delivering a, trigger warning, stillborn calf as it dies, and its mate seeking revenge on the clumsy humans who accidentally killed her and the baby. I wasn't too aware of the score, though it's possible that haunting soundtrack affected me at this age where my attention was more focused on the action figures in my hands than the movie itself. There were the occasional moments of camp violence, with the whale jumping up and snatching people off the boat, dragging them under the water to their deaths, but nothing too memorable or traumatizing in the first half. I do remember being disturbed seeing a beautiful girl, one of the supporting characters played by Bo Derek, who had her leg broken by the whale earlier in the film, get her seaside house knocked into the water and her leg that was wrapped in a cast bitten off. You could see her leg in an actual killer whale's mouth as it swam away. This wasn't much more violent or bloody than anything in Jaws, but the context of it, her importance to the characters, her alien beauty, the fact that she was already handicapped and it had to be the broken leg that was taken was more upsetting to me than anything I remembered from the carefully considered violence Steven Spielberg had crafted for his young audiences. The overall attitude of Orca, especially these strange moments of violence, was closer to the gray, ugly randomness of reality we try to escape from in cinematic entertainment than to the slick, fun, and purposeful violence of lean, bubble-wrapped genre thrillers I was used to, like Terminator 2 or Jurassic Park. Then there was the ending. Jesus, the ending. After following the whale to the icy waters of Canada and losing most of their crew, the Native American character pulls a gun on the main character, demanding they go back home. But he's crushed by falling ice after the whale sinks the boat. The main character and the woman who has accompanied him in trying to kill the whale are the only ones left. The whale corners the man on the ice. Focusing on my toys, I may have missed something, but the next thing I remember is looking up at the TV and seeing the whale pull his body under the water like Quentin Jaws. The woman weeps, wearing a red dress, while a helicopter flies by just in time to save her. And the whale swims away beneath the ice. The quest to stop the killer ended in tragic futility and senseless death. This wasn't Jaws meets Free Willy, it was Jaws meets Chinatown. For the first time, at age seven, I saw that monsters could win and heroes could die. A potent, disturbing truth to a child who was still inhabiting the relentlessly optimistic world of Rankin Bass. Particularly the stop-motion holiday special Santa Claus is Coming to Town I watched repeatedly on VHS each December. It was fitting then that Keenan Wynn, who voiced Winter Warlock in that Christmas special, also played Novak in Orca, the first casualty of the killer whale. I was not happy. At age seven, main characters didn't just die, and they don't get eaten by a whale they've been hunting for a 90-minute movie, a whale that's killed or maimed almost everyone they've come into contact with. 
It was all a waste for these characters and a waste of my time. Imagine as Chief Brody fires at the shark biting down on the air tank before we can utter that famous line, the shark leaps out of the water and bites him in half. Though Orca ripped off the premise of Jaws, its downbeat ending returned to the pessimistic cinema of the early 70s, using the Jaws concept to make the cynical kind of film that Jaws' happy ending had helped to destroy. But I wouldn't understand this until years later. It was still 1997, and I was still pissed. I watched the credits roll as the whale swam triumphantly below the ice. Then I ejected the video, put it back in the box, and wrote it off as garbage. I was too angry at the seemingly random choices of the filmmakers to realize that this cold, ugly, reality-shattering feeling of disappointment was one I would never shake off, and later grow to deeply appreciate. Years passed, and between 7 and 14, I found myself thinking about the movie more, becoming obsessed by the experience, all the unanswered questions, the twisting randomness of it, why did it have to exist, the fact that it was never mentioned by anyone anywhere, and I had no way of watching it because this was the early 2000s before you could track down oddities like this on YouTube, only added to its intrigue. But sometime between 2004 and 2006, after we switched to digital cable and something called softcore porn became available in our house, Orca showed up on the TV guide. This was one of those rare occasions when your throat dries up, your heartbeat quickens, your body becomes stiff, like running into someone you hate at the grocery store. Time slowed down as I performed the task with acute precision, aggressively tightening my grip on the remote, clicking over to the title, clicking the title, clicking record, setting it to begin five minutes early and end five minutes late to make sure I don't miss a thing. Looking back, this technology feels as antique in today's post-streaming world as VHS did back then. Upon rewatching this time higher definition widescreen, I realized a few things about the movie. It was actually pretty good. Great, even. The ending is appropriately tragic, with both the whale and the main character completing similar arcs, and I don't think I had realized this the first time, dying together. It's implied that the whale will not be able to breach the ice and will drown. What I thought at seven was a villain triumphantly riding off into the sunset was actually a death march, the final victim in this tragic story of a whale that wanted to avenge its slaughtered family. Whale Shakespeare. This time, the Morricone score consumed me, encapsulating the singular dismalness of it all. The cold feeling of disappointment remained, only this time I liked that feeling. But it evolved into a confused dread when I realized many things I had seen in 1997, I actually hadn't. Specifically, the weeping woman at the end with long brown hair and the red dress was not wearing a red dress. It was Charlotte Rampling in muted gray and brown winter garments, her hair hidden under a wrap. Her lip quivered at the death of her love interest, but the acting was much more subtle than the intense sobbing I remembered. Why had one of the only things that stuck in my mind been the red dress if no red dress is shown at any point in the movie? Petty quibble, maybe, but the most shocking difference from my memory of that first viewing was the death of the main character. One of the few things I specifically remembered was that he was bitten and pulled under the water. That's what I saw, he was eaten. As I watched the second time, I saw the whale fling itself onto the ice, tilting it down while the leading man slid into the water and not into the whale's mouth like I remembered. The man was played by Richard Harris, who I later found out played Brolo in that version of Hunchback I had also rented back then. It was not until writing this that I realized both traumatizing movie rentals, filmed 20 years apart, starred the same actor. So after Richard Harris slides into the water, instead of eating him, to my surprise, the whale uses its tail to launch him into the air, his body breaking against an iceberg, killing him. 
He then slides into the water, the whale under the ice, Charlotte Rampling noticing the approaching helicopter. So I remembered it wrong. Big deal. But I just couldn't understand. Why were all these years plagued by such a strong memory of seeing the whale eat him? I had seen that. I knew it happened. I... I was convinced this was an alternate cut of the movie, and the version on the VHS was somehow discarded for the TV version. How could a false memory stick with me in such a potent way for half my life? I had to talk to someone about it. I asked my uncle, who is a movie buff, and of course he had seen Orca in theaters when it first came out. I asked him what he remembered about the ending and Richard Harris, and my uncle simply said the words, Ah, he got munched. I told him I rewatched it and this wasn't the case, but like me, he insisted he was sure that's what he saw. I was so close to accepting the fact that I remembered it wrong, but my uncle's shared memory of it proved that I hadn't. If only he had confirmed that this wasn't the case and that I was mistaken about the ending, I could have just let it go. I looked all over the internet for any viewer recollections or photos of this alternate ending and found nothing. This bothered me for so long that I eventually found a copy of the movie on VHS, pushed it into our old VCR, and frantically fast-forwarded to the end. I would finally know the actual ending to the movie I had seen on that exact videotape when I was seven. So far, it played out just like the second viewing, the digital cable viewing. The Native American, played by Will Sampson, was crushed by ice, which I remembered seeing as a kid. Charlotte Rampling still not wearing the red dress, which I had accepted, but the moment in question had come. Richard Harris stared down the whale, and as it leaped up onto the plastic patch of ice that gleamed under the hot sun on that fake-looking set in Malta, the images blurred in surreal VHS fashion, a blur that could make outdated special effects, phony glaciers, and unbelievable continuity errors somehow more believable in the fever dream age of pre-digital film. A final confirmation of my memory was approaching as I stared frozen, paying full attention to the moment on the tape I had missed years ago. Footage of a real orca falling in slow motion toward the ice, twisting like Shamu on the way down. Cut to the mechanical orca, the body not twisted, its belly landing stiffly on the ice, tilting it down into the water. The 50-foot-long patch of ice tilts up like a seesaw, lifting Richard Harris 30 feet into the air. He loses his grip and slides toward the animal's jaws. An actual orca waits for him at the bottom, the mouth gaping open. As he slides down toward it, I realize, no matter what happens, I will have to put this obsession behind me and accept this as the definitive ending to that strange film I found at Hollywood Video years ago. Richard Harris did not slide into the whale's mouth. He slid into the water, the whale circled him for a few moments, and I found myself thinking maybe the whale pulls him under. Then I realized I had this exact same thought when I watched it the second time on digital cable, confused by this different ending. At that moment, as I had feared, the whale slid its tail under Richard Harris and launched him into the air, killing him as he crashed against the ice. The dead body slid into the water, and the movie ended the exact same way it did on the premium cable channel, and the exact same way it did on the video rental when I was seven. There was no alternate version that was snatched up from Hollywood video, incinerated by the Ministry of Truth. In the 30 years since my uncle had seen Orca in theaters, his memories of the movie had been conflated. And when I was seven, I simply wasn't looking at the screen in that crucial moment. Even now, it was too much for me to accept that, at that age, I probably just wasn't paying attention to the movie, which was dialogue-heavy, and I probably only looked up when I noticed it would be a violent or action-packed moment. 
I probably heard Richard Harris landing on the ice, looked up, saw the blood on his face as he slid into the water, and assumed the whale was pulling him under. I must have been too certain and too upset about the death of the main character to rewind and confirm the cause. I just remember at seven saying, that's the guy of the movie. You can't kill the guy of the movie. I'm in no way saying that my experience with Orca will make it a masterpiece for anyone else, or even that most people would find it that special. It was pretty widely hated and written off as a Jaws cash-in when it premiered in 1977, but I have to say that in my research into the elusive ending, I was satisfied by how many reviews I found that shared my appreciation for the drama and toxic sadness of it. The parallels between the family lost by the man and the family lost by the whale and equally careless and random moments of violence, and how the score and final song that play over the image of a whale swimming to its doom beneath the ice seem to capture the connection in sickening perfection. My appreciation of the shared love of this film reached its peak when I heard Quentin Tarantino defended on the Pure Cinema podcast, saying about the greatest examples of Jaws ripoffs, quote, That's high quality stuff, man. I mean, I could make a case for Orca. I mean a strong case. I mean no comedy about that case. I can make a strong case for Orca on the Morricone score alone, but it's more than that. Of course Tarantino liked the Morricone score. After viewing a screening of Orca at his theater, The New Beverly, in early 2020, just before the COVID shutdown, I imagined a version of Orca directed by Quentin Tarantino. A version that hits a wider audience in a bigger way than the 77 flop did. In classic Tarantino, non-linear fashion, he would perhaps make the effective move of taking a quiet moment early in the film between Nolan, who is the ill-fated lead played by Richard Harris, and a priest after the funeral of his friend Novak, the whale's first victim, and move this scene to the end of the film for greater effect. It would play as a flashback in Nolan's mind as he dies next to the whale on the ice. In the scene, Nolan asks the priest, Can you commit a sin against an animal? The priest responds, why, you can commit a sin against a blade of grass. Sins are really against oneself. It's hard to imagine this repositioning of the scene not having a strong cinematic effect in this new context, maybe even a tear-jerking moment. But even with this in mind, it's hard to imagine an ending stronger than the one that's followed me all these years. In real time, Nolan slips into the icy water, the whale gives a final look to Rachel, played by Charlotte Rampling, and the camera follows the whale under the ice as the Morricone song adds an eerie, high-pitched beauty to this morose, consuming reality and the credits roll. It is one of the most upsettingly powerful endings to any movie I have seen, and though it may not be a feeling you want to experience that often, it defines to me the strongest possibilities of how the medium of film can have a lasting effect on a person with the right combination of music, images, and context. My relationship with Orca has evolved from a disappointing, tragic, one-time half-watch fogged by the mystery of childhood memory into a teenage obsession and ultimately an adult respect for a film with a surface cheesiness that thinly covers a darkness as intricate and touching as any of the most cherished movies in my memory.